Hello and welcome to The Good Council, the podcast of the World Future Council. In each episode, we'll highlight current challenges and policy solutions. And we'll also take you on a journey of inspiring stories. Listen in to another of our intergenerational dialogues from around the globe. My name's Annika, I'm 25 years old and I'm a consultant at the World Future Council. In this episode, I'm speaking with Maria Fernanda Espinosa, who's one of the councillors of the World Future Council. On the 5th of June 2018, she was elected as president of the United Nations 73rd General Assembly, as only the fourth woman to hold that office in UN history. Maria Fernanda has more than 20 years of experience in international negotiations and multilateral issues such as peace, sustainable development, women's rights and biodiversity. She was a permanent representative to the UN in New York and later in Geneva. She has also served as Minister of Natural Heritage and Minister of Foreign Affairs on two occasions. Today I'm delighted to learn more about her as a person as well as her work and mission in life, including her amazing engagement with the World Future Council. Good morning, Maria. How are you? I'm very well and very pleased to be with you, Anita. Well, I'm very pleased that you're here and that you're taking the time out of your really, really busy schedule. Um, it's a pleasure to have this conversation. Thanks so much. No, I have to thank you. <laughs> thank you. So let's start um, with a brief look into your childhood. What was that like and how has that shaped who you are? Well, first of all, I, I grew up with three brothers and uh and um and that i think was very important to to shape my personality um it was i had a mother she she of course was my role model very independent very strong very much in charge self-educated because in my mom's generation um women didn't go to university they just got married and had children, but uh, she prepared and self-educated herself. And she was extremely independent, a very successful businesswoman and uh, very much in charge of our ha- household. Even though uh, there was uh, very much like a male uh, uh, accent, uh, my dad, very traditional, conventional, and my three brothers. So uh, the team was my mom and I, and, uh, and she made sure that I had uh, the strength, the independence, and uh, the voice uh, with my three brothers, of course, but in the family and outside the family as well. So I, I would say my childhood was a, a happy childhood, a little tough on the school front because uh, um, at the time when I grew up, there was no a, idea about what today we called bullying. And at the time, we didn't have that category. But now that I, um, that I think in, you know, I think about the past in a way, I realized that, yes, I was subject to bullying because I was different. I, I had a, lots of freckles, red hair, and I was left-handed. And uh, so I wasn't, uh, when you are a kid, the only thing you want is to be exactly the same as your peers and classmates. So I had this problem of writing with my left hand um, and uh, in different, you know, my physically different because of freckles. And uh, I had all kinds of nicknames and all of that. 
but my mom was extremely supportive. Uh, at when I grew up, there was this idea that um, uh, writing with your left hand was a bad habit, and that you need you needed to fix it and use your right hand. That was the right thing to do. And my mom was extremely, extremely strict at school, saying, "My daughter is left-handed. Just let her do." And, uh, and don't, don't force her to use her right hand. These are things that uh, you know, may appear um, unimportant, but they were. And, and that I think all these elements shape my personality as a, as a very strong person. And, uh, and uh, I, I think it had a, you know, a strong impact in my future and in my career and life choices. I can imagine. I, I would have never guessed, but then you never really know any of these things about someone else <laughs> until you ask, right? So, um, but, but what a story it is, looking at who you are now and where you are in your life. I think that's a powerful sort of lesson for everyone um, who's, who's listening and who maybe goes through the same struggles um, in their childhood. So if you look actually at your really successful career in, in politics and international diplomacy, is there anything that you would like to tell your younger self? Well, I think one of the, uh, um, of, of the moments in, in my life when I was growing up that were extremely important for my future is very early. I don't remember how old I was. Uh, my mom, something happened and she came and said, listen, no one is going to knock on your door and tell you, here you have this opportunity. You have to fight for it. You have to shape your own future in a way. And, uh, and I think that was so transforming in a way. I always knew that I had to fight for my dreams and to follow my principles and values and to put all my passion and energy uh, on the things that I, I wanted to do and change and transform. Um, and when I was a child, uh, my favorite uh, you know, game to play, very strange, but I had my cousins and, and my brothers. So I always organized a school and I, I was playing as if I was a teacher. Uh, teaching things, you know, and, uh, and I think what this was also a, a, a landmark uh, in my life in terms of being able to, to share, to, to learn, to interact. Um, and that I, I think was very important for the advocacy work. I started very early in my career uh, supporting indigenous peoples on their rights. Uh, and struggles, uh, being an activist on the environmental front in a very early stages uh, of, of uh, my professional career as well. And I started working and living with indigenous communities of uh, the Ecuadorian Amazon for a long time. Then I went to work for IUCN and became the regional director. And I started to, to really shape my international career, but. Uh, I, I really uh, started, uh, you know, touching the ground, living in the Amazon, learning amazing 
things in, in uh, worldviews indi from indigenous people, especially indigenous women. And um, then I started to go uh, into different scales, working at the national level, then internationally. And that also shaped my diplomatic career. But I think it's always important to go back to the roots, to remind yourself over and over again, what are you, what is that you're fighting for? For the dignity of people, for human security, for planetary security, for a different uh, way of that, of shaping our societies and the way we relate to nature and the, the way to we relate uh, to uh, our environment uh, as a global commons. And uh, so I, I think that uh, it's, it's a process. Nothing happens uh, by a miracle, especially for us, for women. And I think you have to craft uh, your own life and your own future and be very mindful that we still live in a world that is not gender equal, uh, that uh, has uh, uh, transactional inequalities. When you're a woman from the global south, um, a woman of, of color, and it's, uh, it's uh, I, I would say, a tougher struggle, but uh, it's worthwhile. You, you have to pursue your dreams, I'm convinced. You touched on many issues there that I'd like to get back to in the course of the interview. Fantastic teaser, um, inequalities, how it is being a woman on the international stage. But first, I'd like to ask, because you joined the World Future Council in 2012, why did you join the World Future Council and um, why do you care about the rights of future generations? Well, 2012, uh, I was uh, then the Minister of Cultural and Natural Heritage, uh, working uh, very, very hard to ensure that our policies and our interventions on the ground brought together culture and nature, and that we basically, through the right policies, erased this artificial wall between culture and nature in a way, and strongly working to recover um, our heritage as a nation in the, the inextricable connection between our cultural diversity with our biological diversity. So I was working on that uh, as a minister and I received the invitation from the World Future Council and and I really was fascinated by the work of the council for two reasons. First of all, this emphasis on, on assessing, looking, exploring at right policies for sustainable development and how the right policies, the right legislation can really bring transformation and change in a country, but beyond a country. So I really, this public policy, right policy approach, I really like that. And the number two, of course, is this concept of transgenerational justice in a way. Transgenerational justice, uh, when you are an environmentalist, it's absolutely critical because uh, this harmony between uh, nature, the economy and politics 
can only happen if you think about the future generations and the legacy that you're going to leave to future generations. So the, I fell in love very quickly with the, the, the mission, the vision of the World Future Council, and I accepted. Uh, I, uh, and I've been so privileged that I, I have been re-elected as a councillor a few times now, and uh, now very soon, I'm going to have my my uh, uh, 10th birthday uh, being part of the World Future Council family. And I feel very, very proud uh, of being part of the family, being part of the mission, and being, being part of the transformative work that the World Future Council does every day. Well, and uh, we are very, very lucky to have you. So thanks so much for, for all the support and engagement that uh, we enjoy having you. Uh, in a sentence though, in being a member with the World Future Council, um, what do you want to change in the world? Well, I think that the World Future Council is a very powerful instrument uh, to uh, bring about uh, transgenerational justice, especially transgenerational uh, environmental justice. But at the same time, I think it, it, it is um, a, the right setting and the right means to make sure that we contribute even if a little bit to empower uh, young people to have their own voices, to be the change makers that they want to be and that they, they deserve to be. So uh, basically uh, this contribution to both a transgenerational environmental justice, but also to work on the right policies, policy positions, and um, uh, legal scaffolds, and to build a true sustainable development for all, leaving no one behind, including the younger generations. I think that's what the World Future Council brings. Fantastic. So um, I have to ask that because the challenges of our time, they're becoming increasingly ever more complex. Um, could you please explain how all of these issues are interconnected, climate change, the rights of women and uh, young people, the destruction of natural habitats and, and peace, how are they interconnected? Well, I, I think, Annika, we, we live a world of paradox. Uh, I am always amazed to see, you know, the level of uh, techno technological uh, development that humanity has reached, the new technologies and uh, the information and communication technologies. We are more interconnected. We know more, you know, the sophistication of science and the um, opportunity to access knowledge and technology. So, and yet, you know, we are unable to come up with a, a really holistic uh, responses to this interconnected crisis. Uh, you said it well, we are living a profound, um, um, I would say, crisis of culture and civilization, because as a society, we are unable uh, to use what we have in, uh, in, in our hands in terms of knowledge, science, technology, to address and solve uh, the critical issues the critical challenge that humanity faces. And there is a strong connection, basically, when 
when you say the climate crisis, when you say the extinction crisis, when you say the inequalities crisis. And what I often say is that these are symptoms of a dysfunctional system in a way. So basically what we need to fix, what we need to heal is uh, the relationship between society, the economy, politics, and nature. And one of the problems is the disconnection between the times of politics and the times of nature. Uh, usually uh, a politician, uh, a head of state and government, you think about the next elections. You don't think about the next generations, the future generations and other future elections. And usually the, the, the time span for policy choices, for political decision-making are four or five years. The cycles of nature are longer. They do require long-term planning, long-term vision, responsibility with future generations. And I also think that uh, we are living a very particular moment in, in humanity's uh, uh, life because of the COVID-19 pandemic, which has been just a synonym of, of loss, of fear, of uncertainty about the future. But at the same time, it's providing us an opportunity to build forward better, to rethink the way we as humans relate to other species. Uh, to have, you know, a true, profound reconciliation with, with nature. And this, you know, goes through rethinking our economy and just start thinking about why is that we are so driven by, by greed, and by overconsumption. Yeah. And um, these are issues that might seem, you know, philosophical or abstract, but they are critical to fixing the path that uh, we are shaping as, as, as humans. And uh, I, I am a stubborn optimist, as Leigh Kofianam uh, used to say. And uh, we are here because we can change course. Of course, we need leadership, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a person that believes in these messianic leaders that are going to come and fix everything for us. It's shared leadership. It is exercising our role as citizens, as, as committed and responsible citizens, uh, young change makers, academics, scientists, the private sector, and of course governments. But uh, we, we cannot leave governments alone to fix all the problems that we are facing. Uh, co-responsibility and co-building, I think are perhaps the key words. Okay, you mentioned something really interesting there. Um, you wrote a recent article where you say, I quote, addressing today's inequities demands a far more comprehensive and critical assessment of underlying systemic forces. The pandemic's disproportionate impact on women, for example, is a direct result of deeply entrenched patriarchal rules and norms that perpetuate segmented structures in the home, in the labor market, and in the workplace, quote, and, and it ties in with what the answer you gave before because it's it's how we structure societies isn't it that really is one of the root causes for all the inequities that we're facing but how can we change these systemic forces well uh, as as i said and, and and wrote in that article 
that you are uh, citing, uh, Annika. Uh, basically, there is no, you know, the golden bullet, the one kind of answer and response. I think that many things that you need to tackle at the same time, um, and one is, for example, the inequities in, in income and opportunity. And for that, the right to a quality education that is inclusive, uh, that has a gender perspective embedded, a uh, part of what we learn every day is so important. The way you grow up, uh, family, uh, and, uh, and the way you set up priorities and values in life is important. Um, not only the issue of, of education, but the issue of preconception uh, and, and of prejudice and the things that uh, you naturalize. You feel that it is natural uh, to have uh, women having certain roles in society and men having uh, you know, other uh, different roles, that it is natural when you have the same qualifications than a, 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 a male professional, it is okay that you receive a lower salary. It's fine, it is not fine. And, and basically, we, part of the role we have as citizens um, is, is just to say no, is, is just to raise our voices. Um, the same goes when, when uh, we are looking at, uh, uh, you know, the most vulnerable in society. They have to have a, vo a voice. They have to be empowered. Um, it, let's think about any dysfunction in society. Look at climate change and look at the, the depletion of, uh, of critical ecosystems. Look at pandemics such as the COVID-19 pandemic. Who suffer the most? Of course, women and girls, because of the staggering um, domestic violence, because of lockdowns, etc. When you look at the at the health workforce, seventy three percent of the health workforce are is uh, are women at the forefront. Uh, but when you look at these national COVID response high level committees or how, however they're called. 80% are men. So men take the decisions, but women are at the forefront, giving the service, the attention, taking care of patients, et cetera, et cetera. And when you look at what is happening with uh, women with disabilities and the pandemic, women and disabilities and the impacts of climate change. So uh, I, I think that we are not uh, in shortage of data, of information, of understanding and knowing that is a, there is a, um, a systemic um, inequality, uh, multiple inequalities, transactional inequalities that cannot be naturalized, that need to be at the forefront when we take decisions at all levels, within our family, at the domestic level, in public life, uh, in uh, uh, legislation design, in public policy, um, in the work we do as uh, advocates, as, uh, as uh, uh, concerned citizens simply. And uh, we have to raise our voices and, and just really 
be very serious about not letting it become part of the normal. Right. And you mentioned the, um, the violence against women. That's also um, a huge problem in many societies around the world. Um, the World Future Council had a future policy award on that, which you were a big part of by organizing also a meeting um, of women in, in the embassy in Geneva. You also supported the World Future Council on the FPA on youth empowerment. Can I ask you, how can they actually help? Well, I, I think that these future policy awards are perhaps one of the, the shining outcomes of, or the footprint uh, I would say, of, of the World Future Council. I think it's, uh, uh, it not only has a value because you acknowledge uh, countries, people, local governments that are doing the right thing in terms of uh, sustainable development, uh, but it is also, um, it, it sets uh, the example, the good practice in order to be shared uh, with others. And um, when you look at the, the bank of uh, the policies that have won the award, basically you have a collection of good practices that I'm sure that have had an impact in other regions, in other places, with other stakeholders that have learned uh, from, from uh, the good policies that the World Future Council is acknowledging. So basically what I think it's one of the, uh, of the uh, of the footprints of the uh, uh, one of the um, identity contributions of the World Future Council. So, in your work with the World Future Council, you are also the one of the co-chairs of the Commission on Rights of Children and Youth. You were also a panelist on the launch event of the Youth Forum Youth Present, um, which is. The, the intergenerational dialogue that we are having right now is also a part of, um, and it was fantastic having you on that panel. What do you think about the activities and um, the political and civic participation of young people today? Well, I, I, I cannot even imagine uh, to have a collective responsibility for improving and reshaping our world for building forward better, for reconciling and making peace with nature without the agency, without the intelligence, the creativity of younger generations. And sometimes, uh, you know, in my long life and career, uh, sometimes you worry because uh, it's, it's uh, nice to have, you know, to have a young person and uh, to tick the box and to say, yes, they are part of, of this table, dialogue, conversation, etc. And I have learned, and I am every day, I am more convinced that uh, they are fundamental actors in whatever we need, we need to do. And if you look at, at, at the younger generations, young leaders, young professionals, they are essentially interconnected. Uh, they are creative, engaged, committed. Um, and, and basically that's what we need. It is the food, the precondition for transformation, for improving uh, the way we relate to each other as humans, but we relate to our environment, 
to our earth system in a way. And um, the what is challenging, I, I would say, is to go from tokenistic engagement of, of young leaders and change makers to naturalize that whatever decision is taken in the multilateral arena, in national decision making, at the local level, and young change makers, young actors have to be part and parcel of the decision making. And uh, I, I know how much quality, how much legitimacy decisions that are taken in this intergenerational form um, have. So it's a, it's a win-win and, and it is a precondition for successful and lasting uh, uh, wise decision-making. Can I ask you if you have one piece of advice maybe that you would like to pass on to all of the young people today, bearing in mind what you just said? Well, basically, I would say that uh, don't be afraid. I think audacity, drive, and commitment, engagement is extremely important. When you look at young people in my own region, in Latin America, you see that unfortunately, younger generations, they, they don't want to get involved in politics, for example. They, they, they are afraid because sometimes politics and political life, especially for women, in young women, it's like a scary, <laughs> a scary choice, a scary place. Um, it's tough. I'm not saying that it's not difficult. But, but don't shy away from politics, for, from you know, being engaged, from raising your voices, from being active, uh, from really you know, convince yourselves that you are capable of shaping and crafting a better, better world in the present and in the future. If it's the world of politics, if it's the world of academia, if it's the world of advocacy, of, uh, of uh, civil society engagement, of working in the private sector, wherever you are, you have to feel that you are change makers, that you have a responsibility and you need to be engaged, especially, and in, in here I'm speaking especially to young women change makers. We need more women in power. I have met so many in my life and they are really making the world shape in a way, you know, you know the, the Greta Thunbergs of the world in a way. And, uh, and, and uh, the more you raise your voices, uh, I think the better uh, the world and world leaders are going to, to respond uh, in a wiser way, I would say. Recently, you also participated um, at the UN Generation Equality Forum in Paris. And in advance of the event, you spoke about the need to tackle issues like gender-based violence and the inequalities of women and girls. Are there any policy solutions that you know uh, that you can share with us and that could remedy that situation? Well, absolutely, and in in here again, this paradox I was mentioning, Annika, because 
we are not lacking of knowledge, uh, of data, of uh, understanding what is happening. The whole Generation Equality Forum was about commemorating the landmark uh, Beijing Declaration and, and Platform for Action 26 years ago. And when you go back and look at the commitments at the documents that came out of Beijing, it's clearly you know, a roadmap on gender equality, women's and, and women's uh, rights. And, and you see that there's a huge implementation gap. Lots of words, but very little actions. Why is that we still have 75% of world parliamentarians are men? and only 25% are, are, are women, are female. When you look at the, at the pay gap between men and women, same capacity, uh, same um, background, same experience, different salary. Why, why is, is it still happening? There is a, a, a pay gap, a gender pay gap of 20%. Automatically, women earn 20% less for the same job. You know, the arithmetics of gender inequality happen almost everywhere uh, in all areas of, of, of public life, of the economy. How many female CEOs are there among the 500 biggest companies worldwide? So we still need to do to, and to act to use the ex existing policy and legal scaffolds to really make changes. Uh, societal profound changes in all levels, political violence against women. That's why the younger generations are so afraid to get to be engaged into formal politics because they know that uh, the, the, the path uh, towards having you know, uh, positions of power in politics have high costs for us, for women. And I speak in, uh, you know, with a lot of experience uh, on that front. And, um, and, and basically, what are the things to do is go from words to action, improve national legislation. Uh, we still have a, a, a big space for improvement in policy and legislation at the national level, but also be very serious about the multilateral decision-making regarding gender equality. Um, the, the CSW, the, the Commission on the Status of Women, uh, the existing um, um, human rights treaty bodies, CEDAW, uh, um, um, the Convention on the Rights of Women as well. So there is a lot of space for policy improvement, for legislation improvement, but, but more importantly, for action. And uh, the Generation Equality Forum was very much uh, geared towards acting and geared towards these action coalitions on six fundamental issues of the, of the agenda, including strengthening the feminist movements towards um, uh, economic empowerment of women and the fight against all forms of violence and discrimination. And the Generation Equality Forum crafted a very important new instrument, which is a compact on women, peace and security the role of women in, in building peaceful uh, societies, in being mediators and, uh, of uh, conflicts um, is extremely important. And, and here, the UN Security Council 
uh, Resolution 1325 is a very important instrument. But again, the shorthand of all of this is uh, uh, deeds and not words. What, what's it like uh, being a woman in power? Well, first of all, uh, when I was uh, president of the General Assembly, I had this initiative called Women in Power. And, and of course, I invited female heads of state and government to New York so they could exchange their own experiences as heads of state and government. But I also made sure that they could interact with younger uh, um, activists and change makers, female, in terms, in a way of sort of mentoring or exchanging. And, and, and basically is uh, to have women in power is not only about having uh, women in parliaments or women heads of state and government, exercising power in all spaces of private and public life is what is going to transform our world. It is not only waiting, you know, to see when is that I am going to be a female parliamentarian or I'm going to be, um, you know, the, the head of state, etc. It is about exercising your power, your, your wisdom, um, in every space of your life. And um, you cannot be a different self in, in private and public. You have to be the same person, grab the opportunities, exercise uh, uh, your, your decision-making, your uh, capacity. Uh, when I was appointed Minister of Defense, I still have you know, the reactions of, uh, of uh, some newspapers in my country. Uh, they said, why is that they are appointing a poet to this position? They completely ignored, you know, my 25 years of professional career and, uh, you know, being a geographer, etc. No, they just picked up because it seemed like um, a weakness that you're a woman and uh, people not making comments about what I did or I said, but uh, the way I was, uh, for example, the way I was dressing for an event, etc. So it, it's, it's a tough call. And there are higher expectations and, and people are more demanding uh, when, uh, when you are a female. It, it, it is true, it, it happens, it, it does happen. And uh, there are so many women out there, trailblazers, uh, breaking the glass ceiling, etc. And they have to perform and you have to perform uh, twice as well and twice as good as uh, any male in the same uh, position. Never, never be silent when you realize that uh, there is something wrong. And uh, I was uh, very vocal myself saying, why didn't you comment about my speech in front of the military? Uh, no, they, they, they made a comment about my green suit at the time. Anyhow, but um, we have to keep uh, walking, walking strong and uh, in exercising our power. It's difficult, but we should not dismay. And, uh, and again, you know, we, we can, we can uh, have, uh, you know, change course of, of things. We should just not be um, to say that's the way things are. This is uh, absolutely not an option for people like you, Annika, for people like me, we, we, we have to continue struggling and building and, and, and partnering and building networks 
uh, of, of, of people that want to change the world. We, we are here for that. We have a mission in a way. Yes, uh, a common mission for future generations, indeed. Uh, what's, your, what's your hope for the generations to come? Well, basically, as I, I constantly repeat myself, because sometimes it's hard to be an optimist, uh, but uh, basically I am convinced that um, the younger generations uh, are going to be the generation that uh, are going to see, for example, the reverse in climate change in climate stabilization. And, and for that, it, it doesn't happen in isolation, a group of people working here or, or there. I think that we are living a time of the need for like a, a global social contract or multiple social contracts that uh, we really need to come together and take a decision that we need to change course because uh, it is not fair that we have the resources we have the food, we have uh, the knowledge, and yet we continue to be uh, societies that are so unequal, so unfair uh, for some. So um, I, I have a lot of faith in, in uh, the, the younger generations. And, uh, but I'm also you know, uh, convinced that this um, co-building cross-generationally is, is uh, so important. This opportunity to mix experience with energy, experience with creativity, um, experience and, and knowledge uh, with uh, um, the, the, the drive to change uh, the world, to make it a better place. I think it's, it's the best mix. Uh, even when I'm, uh, I have to put together teams to work as minister, as president of the General Assembly, I always make sure, first of all, to have gender, uh, gender parity in my teams, uh, different regions, countries, perspectives, backgrounds, uh, this diversity, but also uh, all the young people working together, having a dialogue, connecting. Uh, this is, uh, for me, the formula for success when you want to, to do things uh, that remain uh, to, have a, to have a footprint. Uh, on the things we do every day. It's the opportunity to, to work together, uh, to, to co-create uh, in the more diverse uh, uh, is a, a team. I think it's better. That has been my experience. Let's move on to one of your huge successes being uh, chosen as president of the 73rd General Assembly, what was that like? What, what did that feel like? Well, um, first of all, I, I think that um, I have had like a long um, um, relationship with the United Nations. Uh, and when I worked for IUCN a long time ago as ambassador of my country in New York and then in Geneva, so this was very much part of my professional ecosystem and having the opportunity to preside the, the main, most important and democratic organ of the United Nations was an incredible opportunity. 
And, and, and believe me that I was totally aware that I was the first woman from Latin America, only the fourth woman ever, you know, to preside over the General Assembly. And they, the world was watching in a way in that I had to perform and, and really show that uh, we deserved to be there and that we needed to leave a legacy in a way. But this is not a one person job, of course. And uh, so I put a lot of energy and time to build a dream team around me. And that is connected to the previous question. It's a very short time. You have a very short time. But I immediately said, okay, I need a dream team. And what is a dream team? Most people I didn't even know, but you know, we need uh, you know, professionals from different regions, different backgrounds, different countries. We need gender parity in our team. We need people with an incredible experience, but we need uh, young professional activists, etc. Uh, I give you an example, the, the, the person who was the head, the, the leading person on my climate change team was 21 years old in my team. Uh, but I, have, I had a first speech writer, which was a, a retired person, more above 70, uh, with a lot of experience. So this was the age span of, of my team and uh, people from, you name it, from um, the United Arab Emirates and, and from Ecuador and, and from Angola. And my chef de cabinet was from Ghana, uh, et cetera. And that's when you see diversity become a strength. And, uh, and I think that uh, the, the presidency of the General Assembly was perhaps one of the most enriching a personal experience that I have had. And we basically did it. We, I'm sure lots of shortfalls and things that we could have done better, et cetera. But I would say a, a lot of accomplishments. Every time that you walk into the UN in New York and you see that it's a plastics free place, uh, that was you know, a campaign that we did together. And that's a lasting little contribution, but it means something. Uh, to have um, to really leave, you know, the standards that any cabinet from the president of the General Assembly has to be gender equal, and it has to bring people from different regions and ages, etc. I mean, these are things that remain, and then you feel happy and, and proud, but you also know that uh, it is about teamwork. What did you learn in in all your time? doing that being being the president of the of the GA for one year you mentioned working in a very diverse team uh, obviously the world is watching any any lessons learned from that time oh many many lessons learned and the the privilege to be able to travel and 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 see and touch a reality in in a way the the opportunity to visit refugee camps in Jordan, uh, to uh, have the privilege to speak and talk to the internally displaced persons in the Lake Chad area, uh, the opportunity to see how street children get organized in India 
to uh, to work on the sustainable development goals, you know, in, in very difficult circumstances, uh, but also to acknowledge the fact that the United Nations uh, are, uh, so we cannot think of a world of the 21st century without the United Nations working uh, on the ground and, uh, and uh, really uh, taking care of the humanitarian crisis and needs of the most vulnerable, of the poorest of the poor, uh, of the uh, victims of conflict, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that was uh, something that we need to, to remind ourselves. Uh, you know, when the United Nations were created 76 years ago, uh, there, there is a long history uh, in between. And of course, uh, the UN has definitely made uh, the world a better place. But at the same time, I think that we are in a, we are living different times than 76 years ago. Uh, when the UN was established, there were 51 member states, and now we have 193 uh, profound changes in technology, geopolitics, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why we, we need to rethink you know, uh, a UN that is perhaps uh, has is better equipped to respond to the current challenges. So I am uh, very much um, uh, aware that there is a need to retool, to rejuvenate, to uh, revitalize the United Nations. And I put myself a lot of effort to revitalize and boost uh, the, uh, the working methods of the General Assembly. Uh, there is a whole long process on the reform of the Security Council, for example. So there is a lot, uh, there is a lot to do, and it, it now is the time. We cannot wait more. Uh, the 75th anniversary of the UN was an opportunity to do, uh, to stop and assess what has happened, you know, 75 years, during 75 years. And uh, the short answer to that is yes, um, we cannot leave or think the world without the United Nations, but it needs to be retooled and revitalized to be better equipped to respond to current challenges. And uh, I uh, am extremely active in, in really contributing to this rethinking process, to this reshaping process of the United Nations. And I learned that the only way that we can solve and address uh, current global challenges uh, is working together. And the place and the, the, the format to work together is a strong multilateral system uh, uh, based and built on cooperation, solidarity, dialogue, and mutual understanding. So um, I, I would say this was uh, my lesson learned as president of the General Assembly. Right, and on that point, to go a little bit deeper, because um, you you wrote an article as well on the reforms and the rethinking that needs to happen that need to happen in terms of global governance. Um, your leadership, of course, at the GA was also very much focused on multilateralism. You literally lived multiculturalism in your team and your dream team. Uh, but bearing in mind all of these global challenges that we're having, human rights violations across the board. Uh, biodiversity loss and climate change, how could a modern 21st century fit-for-purpose global governance model look like? 
Well, I, I always speak about uh, uh, multilateralism 2.0, and, um, and and basically there is a there is a very dynamic, uh, vibrant process happening worldwide. It started with a world consultation for the 75th anniversary. Uh, 1.5 million people, most of them, the majority of them, young people responding, what were the priorities and uh, what is that the UN needed to do in the 21st century? And what is clear is that um, um, the changes that need to happen cannot be cosmetic. Yeah. Uh, we need profound changes, even thinking about a new structure, a new ways of taking decisions within the UN. What we need is, and I fully agree with the UN Secretary General when he said, we need a more inclusive networked multilateralism. And I think what he meant is that we need more voices from with the peoples. And it's the first phrase of the UN Charter. More voices from young people, from civil society, clear rules of engagement of the private sector, the importance of the philanthropic sector. We cannot just leave the, the whole responsibility to governments and member states. We, we need to, to do like burden sharing and co-responsibility. That, that is one of the critical issues. And, and also uh, to see how is that we take decisions that put uh, common interest in our responsibility over our commons, over particular uh, or individual countries' interests. And um, this is tough because you tend to think about your country first, you know, uh, and we have witnessed uh, a rising nationalism, for example. And the truth of the matter is that multilateral decisions do not counter sovereignty of states. On the contrary, they promote uh, you know, the, uh, the ability of a country to address and solve uh, the problems it faces. Um, the question I ask often is, can we solve, for example, transnational crime or terrorism? Can we solve climate change? Can we solve the extinction crisis by going alone responses? The answer is no. Uh, when you look at what, what happened with the COVID-19 response, multilateral response, uh, let's look at the vaccination and the vaccines. Uh, unprecedented swiftness in producing a vaccine in a very short period of time, one year. So we were so happy, we said, okay, vaccines, this is going to solve the problem. The problem was again, that there was a lack of generosity, a lack of vision, a lack of understanding that no one was going to be safe until everybody was safe and that access to vaccines was critical. I, I often said that access to vaccines and universal vaccination was the best macroeconomic policy. Uh, and yet you had countries overbuying the vaccines, having four or five doses of vaccines per inhabitant, per citizen, 
when other parts of the world, especially the global south, having you know, zero access. If you look at inequalities in vaccination in some countries in Africa, in some countries in Latin America as well, then you see that you know, it's really not the best move, the smartest move, because we are interconnected. And now we are facing serious difficulties because of the new variants, et cetera. And that is the, the, the uh, example, a, a very concrete yet powerful example that the only way to respond to global crisis is through uh, a, a vibrant, uh, efficient multilateral uh, cooperation. And um, otherwise it's going to be very, very difficult. Even if you're a super powerful country, yeah. uh, super powerful countries cannot solve uh, climate change or what you, we said before. So uh, is a strong, efficient, accountable multilateral system is uh, essential, is absolutely essential. And that was also uh, something that I have learned in the past 20 years of my professional uh, career. So moving on the last topic in our whistle-stop tour of talking about big topics. <laughs> um, another personal mission of yours is universal health coverage. Uh, you are, for example, on the Lancet COVID-19 Commission, you're on the political advisory panel of the uh, Universal Health Coverage 2030 movement, and you were also part of the webinar of the World Future Council, which focused on universal health coverage uh, in, the, in the context of protection against hazardous chemicals, which is uh, this year's future policy or topic, what are the basics of that demand for universal health coverage? What are the benefits? Well, first of all, the acknowledgement that uh, health is, is a, a global public good and it's a fundamental right. And of course, uh, universal health coverage is a precondition. It's an equalizer in, in society. Um, the, it's, of course, a huge challenge, especially for the developing world. But what COVID-19 has shown uh, strongly is that if you have uh, an efficient uh, public health system and uh, if you have uh, really, you are serious about access uh, to health uh, as, as a human right, it really makes things easy. And uh, my uh, commitment to universal health coverage, uh, to uh, health for all in a way is, uh, is a, a manifestation of my commitment to human rights as well and to a wise a co-responsibility and management of our global commons. And, and I think that um, the COVID-19 pandemic has been a tough, tough lesson, a, a stress test uh, that uh, where we have learned a lot. And uh, um, universal health coverage is perhaps the most important equalizer uh, in society. Uh, it, it is uh, a, a guarantee for resilience when a, a major uh, global health crisis uh, occurs. I was very much behind the universal health coverage high level meeting and political declaration when I was president of the General Assembly. 
Um, and uh, um, that is also my role as member of the Lancet Commission on COVID. My work is more on global health diplomacy and uh, what are uh, the upgrades and the improvements in uh, uh, our global governance to be better equipped and prepared for future pandemics. Uh, unfortunately, uh, experts say that uh, COVID-19 is not going to be the last pandemic, especially if we continue to, to harm our ecosystems uh, and our environment. And we have to remember that uh, the latest pandemics and global health crisis, they have had zoonotic origin, which is uh, the voice of nature telling us stop because uh, it's when you have gone beyond the boundaries, you have gone too far. And uh, zoonotic diseases are perhaps the best symptom that we need to reconcile and make peace with nature. The much needed connection between international policymaking and national action is basically what uh, it's on, on stake because you can have uh, the better, the best guidance, the best policy advice, etc. But then, uh, at the national level, you have to take bold decisions. And uh, we also learned that uh, when you need to prioritize where to put the money, perhaps uh, the best investment in, in resilience building is to have a healthy citizenship, especially for the, the poorest people, the most vulnerable. Uh, they have to be taken care of. And that requires a very strong, um, efficient public health system. Thank you so, so much for, for this conversation, uh, for taking the time. I learned an awful lot and it's been absolutely fascinating and inspiring. And I hope everyone who listens will also really enjoy the conversation we've had. Thank you. Thank you, Annika. I, I have to thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed this inspiring conversation and will tune in again for more next time. This podcast is brought to you by the World Future Council, a foundation that identifies, develops, highlights and disseminates future just solutions for the current challenges that humanity is facing. To support our work, find us at www.worldfuturecouncil.org as well as on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and, of course, in our next episode.